Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 6, the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Go ahead and hold your spot there as well. Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, let me ask a very, very important question. Uh, when you look at the difference between Pepsi and Coke, right, this is very, very important. How many of you would say that you are Pepsi drinkers? All right, let me see your hands. All right. How many of you would say that you are Coke drinkers? Let me see your hands. Okay. Well, you look really, really proud to be able to do that. Uh, Coca-Cola Company is an interesting thing. Of course, it has a lot of roots and ties here to our own state here in Georgia. 1886 is when, I guess you could say, the first Coca-Cola was served, and there's a lot of history that goes into that and a lot of the uh, early stages. But 1886 typically is when they say the very first Coca-Cola was actually served as a, as a beverage, as a product, and, and about within just a few years ago, it was in at least 200 countries, and we, you know, you hardly can go to any place on the globe without having access to a Coke, right? It's just worldwide notoriety, worldwide uh, use, and uh, just permeated our culture regardless of what continent you may live on. Within just a few years ago, 2015, actually, it was the third most valuable uh, brand in all the world behind Apple and Google, and so it, obviously it has grown just to this immense corporation with a global reach. However, there was a day some years ago when they felt like there needed to be a change that had to come. And some of you remember that, and you remember the day when New Coke was rolled out. Well, there was a story to it because they had decided that, you know, they were losing a little bit of market share and they needed to just kind of rattle the cage just a little bit. And so they rolled out this product called New Coke. And it was life-changing for many to the negative. And when they rolled out Coke, uh, or the, rather this new version, what they did was they put aside the old recipe that had been under lock and key. I mean, I think we've even got a picture of the vault that it's in now. This is a highly, like, like the greatest trade secret in all the world. Literally, this is at the world of Coke in Atlanta. Uh, up until 2011, the recipe for the old Coke uh, uh, was, uh, was in the SunTrust Bank in Atlanta and then moved to the world of Coke in 2011. And so you know, what they did was in, in 1985, they literally put all of that to the side and they rolled out this new product called New Coke. Uh, the old classic Coke would no longer be here. This was going to be the new variety. And it had done really, really well in taste tests you know, leading up to this particular date in 1985. However, when it was rolled out, everybody just absolutely hit the roof. I mean, there were, there were Coke drinker protests <laughs> that took place. They were getting 1,500 calls a day into their call center, whereas normally they would only get 400. Now, I, I don't have any idea why they'd get 400 to begin with. I mean, what are you going to say when you call the... How many of you have called the call center at Coke? Any of you? All right. So they're still 400 a day for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe asking for free product. But it went up to 1,500, four times just about an increase per day of calls that were coming in because people did not like this new code. They didn't like the fact they had lost what was so popular and was so favorable to them. They were getting letters, 40,000 by the time it would all settle. They were being the, the uh, mockery of every late night talk show host, it seems. And in just three short months, New Coke, because of the backlash, was taken off the shelf, and it was kicked to the curb to a large degree, right? And what was called classic Coke, that old recipe, was brought back, and that's what's been in existence ever since. Well, it's interesting because when you, when you think about it, th this was huge news after this three months' time when New Coke was removed and Coke Classic was brought back in. Uh, it, it, it was the major news story in our particular country, at least. Uh, in fact, two of the major networks had that as their leading story. Virtually every major newspaper in any major city uh, across our country had it on their front page news. And Peter Jennings actually interrupted 
Oh my goodness, right? Interrupted General Hospital to announce the news that classic Coke was coming back. You know, and, and he say all that to say this, that, that all of us are accustomed to new. And yet all of us have come to those places in our lives where we were tired of the old and we tried to roll out new in our own way. We tried to roll out new in our own terms and what we had hoped would be delivered didn't come. For you, it may have been a new relationship that you thought, you know what, I'm tired of this old relationship, I'm ready for a new one. And you pursued a new relationship, you got the new relationship, maybe it was three months just like new Coke, and you realized this is just not delivering what I thought it would into my life. Maybe it was a new house, maybe it was a new car, maybe it was a new city, maybe it was a new vacation home, maybe it was a, 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 a new hobby, maybe it was some other form of new, but we've all experienced having something missing on the inside, and we tried to bring in new on our terms, and that new didn't deliver. Well, last Sunday on Easter, what we looked at was this whole concept of new life as we're beginning a series called New. It's just three service, or three Sundays long, last Sunday, today, and the next Sunday we wrap it up. Very, very brief series looking at new. But last Sunday, we looked at new life, and we unpacked the story of Nicodemus and how when Jesus met him in John chapter 3, Nicodemus had everything. He had uh, prestige. He had uh, religious accomplishment. He was a religious leader there in first century uh, uh, Jewish circles. He, uh, he, he was the one who had respect from everybody on every street corner, it seemed, and yet he was lacking on the inside. And he came to Jesus, and he had this extended conversation that we find captured in John chapter 3. And basically, the long story short is that Jesus shared with him the need for a new life. And that new life would be so drastic, that new relationship with God would be unlike anything Nicodemus had ever dreamed. It wouldn't be found in religion, it wouldn't be found in keeping all the rules, it would be found in a relationship with the Messiah named Jesus. And so drastic would be this relationship that Jesus would tell Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You, in order to, to see the kingdom of God, to have heaven and a relationship with God, you have to be born again. And th th these were, were interesting terms for Nicodemus. Nicodemus was advanced in years. And if you were, were here last Sunday, you remember that he had a little bit of trouble just grasping what it meant to be born again. And Jesus helped him to see that there needs to be a fundamental change on the inside. You need to be changed on the inside, not the outside stuff. The inside needs to change. That is so drastic when that change comes that it's like you've begun a brand new life. And that brand new life would be genuine because God gives a brand new life to those who come to him through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so we unpacked a lot of that last Sunday of what new life looks like. And this morning, what I want to do in the second message in the series is add to that by looking at a message entitled New Growth. So last Sunday, new life. Today, new growth. Next Sunday, you'll find out when you get here. All right. So new growth is what we're looking at today. Here's a principle that I want to give you, and I hope you'll jot this down because we're going to begin to unpack it. And ultimately, we're going to sift it through Romans chapter 6 once we get there. And, and this, this principle that we're going to start with, I'll give you two today, but the first one we're going to look at is this, that the experience of new life shows itself through new growth. That if we genuinely have a new life in Christ, meaning we have turned from our sin, given our lives to Jesus, he has come in, radically saved us, right? He's given us a relationship with God. He's wiped the slate clean. He's forgiven us of all of our sin. When that happens, that's going to show itself ultimately through new growth that comes in our lives. It's not going to show itself because we start going to church. Anybody can go to church with the same old life that we've always had. It's not going to show itself in, in any other way primarily except through new growth that comes through our walks with God. 
Let me give you an example. A few years ago, uh, I had a, a bush that was uh, in my yard. It was still in the container in which it was purchased, right? You know those Walmart containers, those black kind of a wavy looking containers that, you know, all the plants come in. Just say this if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, just, just say this. That makes no sense, doesn't it? Just do this. Okay, so this Walmart container, and I had this, this plant that was in it, and uh, I didn't plant it. Had it in my yard, it was still in the container, never planted it, intended to get around to it, had every intention in the world, I'm going to get it out there, I'm going to dig a hole, I'm going to put this in there, well, I'm going to take it out of the container and then put it in the hole and uh, water it, I'm going to take care of it, it's going to grow. And I just never did that. I'm talking like months and it died and it just died right down to nothing. Brown, no leaves on it from what I can remember. And uh, it was just one of those sort of kick myself moments where it's like, why didn't I just plant that thing? Why didn't I find a spot, dig a hole, just plant it, and now it's dead, it's of no value, and you know, just such a waste. Well, I was at a nursery um, uh, not long after that, a couple of months or a few months afterwards, and, and I thought about that plant while I was there. And so I asked one of the guys that worked there, one of the landscapers at the nursery, I said, hey, I've got this plant home, it's still in the original container, I've never planted it, it's all dead. I mean, do these things come back or do they not? It was a bottle brush tree, all right? So you're familiar with those, and uh, call it tree for a reason. And so uh, he said, well, he said, here's what you need to do. When you get home, just uh, take your fingernail or a little knife or something, scratch the bark of it somewhere, and underneath that bark, if it's green, it's still good. It's still got life. So I went home, and I scratched it. What a great principle that was. And I scratched it. Sure enough, it had, had green there. And so I got it out of the container, put it in a hole, and I watered it and began to take care of it. And now that bottle brush plant is a bottle brush tree. It's probably 15 feet tall off the corner of my house. And now the question is, why did I plant it there, right? Yeah. So I'm having to trim the thing off to keep it off the eaves and off the roof and everything. It's just huge. And, and here, here's the principle of that particular story, that if there is life, what naturally flows out of that is going to be new growth. And it was a lot of new growth. It's got all the red stuff on it now and everything. And, and growth follows life. That's the way it always works. And we understand that when we're talking about infants and babies and children, right? We understand that growth follows life. We understand that whenever we... Um, you know, begin a new endeavor and we're learning all kinds of new information. You start a new job and you're going through training and it's got, you, you got this new job and then you get all this new information and then you begin to newly do this job and you begin to expand and grow in your career. We understand that. But we sometimes lose sight of that that it still applies on the spiritual level of our lives as well. That when we start a new relationship with God, when we give our lives to Jesus, new growth is going to begin to show itself. And the way we know we have new life is not because I tell all my friends, hey, I started going to church, as powerful as that may be. The way we know that new life exists is because my friends and people I know begin to see a change in me. They begin to see a change in me that was, wasn't there before because I was an old person, right? Don't tell Jeremy I said that because that can be taken out of context. I, I had an old life, right? I had an old life that was there, but now that I've come to Christ, new life has come and new growth is going to begin to follow that. But here, here's why this is so important for us to recognize. Some of you are saying, you know what, we've heard all this before. You have. It's all the way through Scripture. But here's, here's what often happens. You pick up any average church, pick a denomination, doesn't even matter. Pick up any average church out of some place in our country, urban, suburban, rural, just pick it up, set it down, do a case study. And what you'll find is, is that that church will be comprised of a lot of people who have claimed to give their lives to Jesus, and they genuinely have. But there is very little to no new growth that has followed their new life. To the point to where those churches are not the salt and light that they should be, 
in their communities because the people who make that church are stagnant and not growing in their relationship with God. To where families that are filled with people who claim to have a relationship with God are not growing spiritually because the people who comprise those families are at a place where they're stagnant in their relationship with God. And so when we start talking about new growth, naturally there are some questions that begin to come. Well, what does that growth look like? How long does that growth take place? Is there ever a place for me, Brooks, where I can look back and say, you know what, I've arrived in my Christian life, right? The growth process is done. I can say that I'm now mature in my relationship with God. You know, I've come to a place to where I have, quote unquote, arrived. Does that ever happen in my life? Well, that's what I want us to look at a little bit this morning and raise the bar on what it means, not just to have an experience of being saved or being made right with God through Christ, but then beginning to grow in that new relationship with God. Here's what I compare it to. I would compare it to a couple of different things. Number one, I would compare the Christian life to a marathon. You've probably heard this before. It is far much more of a marathon than it is a sprint. If you watch track and field on TV, and sadly it seems the only time we ever get to see that in our own country on television is during the Olympics uh, or some world championship or something. But if you ever watch it on television, if you ever catch it late at night, right, and you watch a, a track and field meet that's taking place, what you'll find is those that are running the short distances, 100 meter, 200, 400 meters, before their race starts, they're going to settle into the blocks, right? They're going to get that start line. All of them are going to do the same thing. They're going to settle in. They're going to step in front of their blocks. They're going to limber up a little bit. They're going to settle into the blocks. They're going to do usually some little habit that they always do, tuck their necklace in, and they're going to get set and wait for the gun to go. And then, boom, off they go. Happens the same way every single time. Why do they do that? Because their race is a sprint. But if you watch the marathoners in that same meet, let's say it's an Olympic race specifically, if you watch the marathoners, there are no starting blocks at the beginning stage, at the start line of the marathon. Uh, there's, that's by design. They don't need them. Because they're not going to be coming out in a full sprint. Even the most uh, uh, successful uh, world champion level marathoners are going to run 26.2 miles in two hours or just over. And they're going to blaze through it. But they're not going to be using starting blocks as a whole different race. And here's the thing. When you look at the Christian life, the Christian life is not something that we just bolt out of the blocks and then run until we can't run anymore and then just fall prey to the world. Yes, there are times where we are filled with passion and we get very excited, obviously. We don't want to dial that back, but we have to understand that the Christian life is more of a marathon, all right? It happens over time. And when I say that, what I also say is that we never get to the place to where we can say, I have arrived. And that's frustrating because there are things that I deal with in my own personal individual Christian walk that you may deal with or you may have your own little set of things that frustrate you to where you think, you know what, I wish I was more mature in my Christian walk to where I wasn't dealing with this attitude or wasn't dealing with this trial the way I used to or with this temptation. I wish I had moved beyond that. And what we find is the more we mature as a believer, it seems like there's a new set of circumstances waiting to test us and to grow us even further. Billy Graham would say when he passed away, I'm sure he would have said at the age of 99, right, that I have not arrived in my walk with God. I've got a long way to go to be like Jesus. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. But here's the thing also, that the, that the Christian life is not just a marathon, but it's also a journey and not a destination. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a journey. It's not a destination. A lot of times we think, well, the Christian life is a destination. I prayed. I gave my life to Jesus. I got saved. I walked an aisle, right? I'm right with God. There, I've arrived at my destination. Now I'm just going to live however I want until God calls me to heaven. 
And that's not the way the Christian life operates. It is a journey. We are, yes, saved in an instant when we place our faith in Jesus, but that starts the journey. And man, I remember when I was a kid and we would go on vacation and we would hit that circuit of Stone Mountain and Cherokee and Gatlinburg. And the next year, Stone Mountain, Cherokee, Gatlinburg. And the next year, Stone Mountain, Cherokee, Gatlinburg. Cherokee, Drama Motel, room number 31, last one on the right, right, you know, on the very end. Same exact room, right? Creatures of habit, our family. I don't know what it was. Friday night, Shoney's, back booth in the corner. And we're just creatures of habit, right? So Stone Mountain, Cherokee, Gatlinburg, and all the way, my mom and dad had to be the most patient people. How much further? Are we there yet? How much further are we there yet, right? I know you didn't do that, and your kids didn't do that. What happens when we say that? How much further? How much further? We're focused on the destination, and we miss the beauty of the journey. We miss the trip. That's part of the fun. That's part of the enjoyment of it. It's not always easy. I remember one of those trips, right? My brother, seven years older, our uh, red um, uh, Chevy Chase-looking station wagon, with a jump seat in the back where you could get down in it and you were out this far above the pavement. I have no idea why they designed it that way. I remember it ran hot, right? My dad and my brother are looking for a ditch to get water to put in the radiator. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but we finished our vacation, okay? <laughs> so the journey is not always easy. The journey is not always just a bundle of fun, right? But it's a journey, and we don't want to miss it. And the Christian life has a lot of ups and a lot of blessings and a lot of good. But there are times when the challenges come because we live in a fallen world. And here's the thing. When we begin to look at new growth, God uses all of that, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, to mature us and to grow us through this journey, not the destination, the journey called the Christian life. Heaven is our destination. The Christian life is the journey on the way there. And God's commitment is to mature and to bring new growth if we're only willing to partner with him in doing that. So let me show you just a couple of stages real quick, and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 6. Three stages of this journey called life. The first stage is the stage we would say where one is without Christ. A person who doesn't have a relationship with God, Ephesians chapter 2 would say that person has the weight of their own sin hanging over them to the point to where they are described as being dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, apart from God. No hope in this world. For those who've never placed their faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter if they live here in our own country, a land of great blessing, or if they live somewhere in some other nation where the gospel is not even found. Regardless, without Christ, we are separated from God. We have no spiritual life whatsoever. That is one stage, the starting stage, because we're all sinners, right? And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Let's say for a moment, however, that that person hears the gospel and they place their faith in Jesus. They turn from their sin and they, they begin a brand new relationship with God. New life comes. What the Bible calls that is a place of salvation. Or if you want to go with even a bigger Bible word, you could call that justification. What that means is, is that when we place our life in Jesus, we move out of that realm of lostness, that realm of being without Christ and without hope in this world, and we move into a brand new category called justification, salvation. We are right with God then forever and ever once we give our lives to Jesus. And the reason we call it justification is because God, through Jesus, not only forgives us, 
but he changes our very standing before him to the point to where he chooses to see us as the very righteousness of Jesus. Now you're thinking, this is too good to be true. I don't think it works this way, Brooks. That, that doesn't sound like what I was always been told because I've always been told God's not going to love me unless I do good, right? Well, I don't know who told you that, but they had a little more studying perhaps they should have done. Because what the Bible tells us is that when we place our faith in Jesus, his righteousness gets credited to our account. This is what it looks like in a Bible verse. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, all right, Jesus was perfect, to be sin on our behalf, that was on the cross, so that we might become, the we are those who place their faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning, when I get to heaven one day, and, and, and I stand before God, and you will too, every one of us will stand before God, every road leads to God. Not every road leads to heaven, but every road leads to God. We'll all stand before him one day. Not all of us will stay in front of him, right? But all of us will stand before him. And whenever I stand before him, there's going to be a huge issue, and that issue is that I have not lived a perfect life. From very, very early on, I committed sin against God. Later, as I got older, I understood full well what that meant, and I still sinned anyway, right? We have all sinned. And the problem is, is that God is holy, and he's not going to let sin into his kingdom. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for me. Here's the good news for a lot of you. The good news is that I and we are justified through Christ, meaning, according to this verse, when we gave our lives to Christ, God took Jesus' righteousness, and he picked it up, and he credited it to your account. So that when he says, come on in, heaven is your home, the reason you can go in is not just because your sin has been forgiven, but your nature has been changed. You have become a new creature in Christ, and the very righteousness of Jesus himself has been credited to your account. So that all God sees is your righteousness, right, that was given to you, imputed to you by Jesus at the point of salvation. So that person moves from no life no relationship with God, to a place of salvation, justification. What's next? That's only the beginning. That next stage is called sanctification. Follow me here. This is real important. I promise you we're going to get to Romans 6. That when a person places their faith in Jesus and they are saved instantly, they are made right with God, nothing they can do to forfeit that, give that away or to walk away from it. When they are made right with God, it is forever. That's why Jesus in John 3.16 called it eternal life. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. He told a big fat lie. It is eternal life. That when a person comes to that place, God's desire then is to help them to live in a way to where in practice, listen, in practice, they demonstrate holiness in a way that reflects their position before God of holiness. Are you with me? So you give your life to Christ, God places you in a position of holiness. You were seen as holy. And then he says, let's get to work and let me help you now live out a holiness that puts your new life on display. That is called sanctification. That is the journey of the Christian life. That is what often is accomplished through many of the ups and the downs many of the blessings and the hardships of life. It is God sanctifying us, making us in practice who he has already declared us to be in position, holy and righteous. Now I'll say this. That is a very exciting place to be, and it is a very challenging place to be. 
Here's why. There are many, many times I realize I've got a long way to go to be like Jesus. There are times where I can be very, very impatient. There are times where I can want things to come my way and nobody else's way. There are times, I know you're never that way, just me, the one who speaks up here every Sunday, right? I know there are times in my life where I don't make the best decisions, when I make decisions that are aimed more at pleasing Brooks than they are at pleasing God. And there are times when I'm through my circumstances, through my choices, through my challenges, I'm reminded, man, I have got a long way to go to be like Jesus. But when I open God's word and I begin to read his word, I'm also reminded of the promises that God has made to never leave me or to forsake me. And that he, like in Philippians 1, 6, when he says that he who began a work, good work in you will carry it on to completion, I'm reminded that God is faithful, even when I'm not always. And that if I only walk with him on his terms, that he at times will use even the hardships of life to mold and shape and to change me. And that's where the challenge and that's where the difficulty sometimes can be. So let's take a look at what it says in Romans 6 about this thing called sanctification and how we can best partner with God. Because I, I think we all want to say, I don't want to be the same next year that I am today in my walk with God. And I certainly don't want to be the same I was the day I placed my faith in Jesus. I want to grow. I want to be a more godly husband, a more godly wife, a more godly parent, a more godly father, a more godly mother, a more godly worker, a more godly worker in the kingdom of God. And so how do we do that? Let's take a look at Romans chapter 6. The book of Romans, I'll give you a little background real quickly, is written by Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary that ever walked this earth. Paul had a desire to take the gospel everywhere he went, literally, everywhere he went. He got beat up for it. He got uh, imprisoned for it. He got beaten for it. Uh, he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And his desire was to take the gospel where it had never been heard. Paul's overarching desire, his ultimate aim, was to get to the city of Rome. In the first century, Rome was the hub. Rome was like Hartsfield International Airport, right? Where all flights go through Atlanta, everything went through Rome in the first century. Paul wanted to get to Rome because he knew that if he could get the gospel there, the crossroads of the world, that it could more quickly spread to the rest of society, to the rest of the culture. And his aim was to get there as soon as he could. God's design, however, was different. Paul would make it to Rome, but he would make it there as a prisoner. He would make it there as one who had, was suffering the human penalty, having been arrested and imprisoned for his faith. And so Paul, however, though he would come there as, an, as a prisoner, perhaps his greatest impact would be upon the believers in Rome through this letter he would write that you have in your Bibles called the book of Romans. It's a lengthy letter, 16 chapters long in our Bibles, and yet it's a letter that covers perhaps the deepest elements of the Christian faith. It is a very deep letter that Paul writes here, the, the gospel, or rather the book of Romans. And yet he also has a way of laying it out for us in a way that's so easy for us to understand. In chapter 6, he's talking about this thing we call sanctification, what it looks like when we live out our faith and when we put God on display. And many have said that the book of Romans as a whole, all 16 chapters, that the theme of it is practice, is putting into practice all the elements of our position. So Paul is showing us here in chapter 6 how to live out our faith and how to experience new growth as a result of our new life in Jesus. And so let's jump in here. Romans chapter 6. We're going to read a fairly short passage of Scripture. We'll break it down into pieces and then make some application. Romans chapter 6. Let's start in verse 16. You can read along with me on the overhead if you don't have a copy of Scripture today. So Paul writes and he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience? He's using an analogy here. 
When you present yourself, uh, yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now, it's interesting, Paul uses a slavery analogy. We, we have to sort of pick ourselves up out of our own nation's experience with slavery, and we have to kind of set ourselves in a first century experience of slavery. It was largely different, still not right, still not what God would design. It was reflective of a fallen culture. And yet Paul is going to use it here as a very vivid analogy of what it means to follow Christ in full surrender. One of every three people living in Italy in the first century, certainly, obviously, Rome would have been a part of that. One in three people living in Italy in the first century were slaves. Paul largely was writing the book of Romans to a group of slaves to the Roman Empire. And as he writes this letter to these slaves who are also followers of Jesus, he is using this analogy of slavery that would have instantly rung a bell with them to help them to see what a surrendered life looks like. And so he says, do you not know that you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether that is sin, your own flesh, your own selfish nature, or whether it's obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a slave to whatever you obey. All right, verse 17 and verse 18. He says, but thanks be to God that even though you were slaves of sin, right, he says in this letter, you were an old life, right? You were the one who at one point didn't have a relationship with God. You were separated from God. You were without hope in this world. You were slaves of sin. Thanks be to God that you became obedient from the heart. You made a decision to place your allegiance to not yourself, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were obedient from the heart. You had new life. You came to Jesus. You were obedient to that form of teaching to which you were committed, that being the gospel. And then having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. No longer slaves to yourself and your whim and your flesh. You are now, by virtue of your new life, a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, he then adds to it. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members or your bodies, your lives, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. He says, remember those days when there were no boundaries? Remember those days when God wasn't on the radar? Remember those days when you did whatever you wanted and nobody, nobody, you, know, you didn't care what anybody else thought? Remember those days in the same way you were a slave to yourself and to lawlessness back then? resulting in further lawlessness. He says in that same way, so now present your members, your life, as slaves to righteousness. And what does that accomplish? He says, resulting in sanctification. In other words, every day that we wake up and say, God, here I am, your servant, reporting for duty. Help me to live according to your word that gives me the boundaries, that gives me the direction, that gives me the guidelines for life. Help me to apply this word to my life. Help me to live in full surrender to you, that every day we do that, living as a slave to righteousness, Paul says, what you're accomplishing is your sanctification. You are moving from new life to new growth. And sometimes it's going to feel like no growth is happening. It's going to feel a lot like winter. Other times it's going to feel like a lot of growth is happening and you can't keep up with what God is doing in your life. It's going to feel a lot like spring. Other times it's going to be a challenge, it's going to be overwhelming, and it's going to feel oppressive. And you don't know if you can continue, it's going to feel like summer with its heat and its drought. And you're going to go through these cycles. 
But the desire is that you live according to God's word, that you live according to his word in community with other believers. He wrote this letter to, to, the, to the believers in Rome, all of them. It's going to happen when you surrender and report for duty every single day. And God is going to bring sanctification. He's going to move you from just your position of righteousness to now the practice of it in your life. And I'll be willing to say, most churches, like I said earlier, you pick them up and you set them aside and you dissect them and you do a little, you, you do a little uh, uh, just a closer look at them. What you're going to find is a lot of believers are stagnant and stuck with no growth in their walks with Christ. And so Paul gives us the remedy here. He helps us to see that growth doesn't happen, happen apart from his word. And it doesn't happen apart from surrender. Well, there's a second principle that I want to roll out this morning as we, as we wrap things up. And the second principle is this. That another way that God often brings new growth in our lives is in the context of new experiences that come for us. And it's in the context of those new experiences, the new of life, that God often brings the most significant growth to us. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you would have to say that some of the most drastic growth to take place in your walks with God happened as a result of a difficult challenge or trial that you encountered that you went through? You trusted God, you held fast, and God brought you through the other side, or he's bringing you through the other side. And you look back and say, you know what? That difficulty in my life resulted in some of the most amazing growth in my walk with God that I've ever experienced. How many of you would say that? Let me see your hands. Hold them up high. Keep them up. Look around. Look around. Okay. God often uses the new to accomplish his greatest work. And why is that? When it's in the realm of challenge... I think it's because it's those challenges, those cage-rattling moments that come in our life. You know, we got fired, didn't see it coming, right? Our, our, our child went off the deep end, we didn't see it coming, we raised them differently. That friend we trusted stabbed us in the back or some decision we made, I thought I'd never do that, I can't believe I did that, I wish I could just hit the reset button and go back and do it over again. We can't find the reset button, right? It's in those challenges, those cage-rattling moments of our lives that we're reminded of how frail we are, that we don't have what it takes, that we don't have it all together, that we haven't arrived. And what often, often happens, and this is the good thing, that whenever the, that cage gets rattled, we often come back to him in a way that we haven't walked with him in a long time, and we end up coming closely to God. You know what happens in Psalm chapter 23? You know what happens in Psalm 23 when it speaks of the good shepherd and how he cares for his sheep? And, and how he, he restores his sheep. You know what happens is that for a shepherd, oftentimes, at least in the first century days, uh, whenever a sheep would wander and it would have a, a tendency to wander and wander and wander and the shepherd uh, would have to put down everything to go find that one sheep and it would bring uh, possible harm to the rest of the flock, what that shepherd would do as a last resort is that he would break the leg of that sheep. He would break the leg of that sheep. And he would then carry that sheep because it was required. He would carry that sheep personally until healing took place. And when that sheep would heal, never again would it wander because of what it had developed 
and the relationship with its shepherd. Now, I'm not saying do good or God's going to break your leg, okay? It's not where I'm going with that analogy. But what I'm saying is that it's often in the trials of our lives where we're reminded of how frail we are, that we don't have it all together, that we desperately need a Savior as much today as the day we invited him to come in and take over. It's in those trials, when that cage rattles, that we come running back home again. And we press in so close to God that it develops a bond and a closeness and a fellowship with him that is so incredibly close that we don't want to wander ever again. And it's the context of that new struggle, that new difficulty. And some of you are in the middle of new today. It's in that context that God sometimes does his best work. So take heart. And sometimes it's the other good new It's that new job we never thought would come our way. It's that new house we thought we'd never have. It's that new car that somebody just rolled across our plate, right across our life. We never thought we would get it. What a blessing. It's that new friendship. It's that that new relationship, whatever it may be. And it's in those blessings that we remember, oh, God, you were so good to me. And it's often in the context of new that God brings his greatest growth. But even there, it's never going to be divorced from his word. And it's never ultimately going to be without our surrender. So what new has God brought in your life recently? What new challenge? What new difficulty? What new blessing? And how might God want to use that new, whether it's easy or hard, to draw you in close, to see that he's a God who loves you, and is a God who has a plan for your life. And as he draws you close in the midst of your new, how willing are you to spend time developing a love for his heart through time and his word? And how willing are you to do that in community with other believers who can also sharpen and encourage you? And how willing are you ultimately to wake up each morning and remind yourself each day That God, here I am, your servant, not here just to share life with you, but to surrender it, to enjoy the journey with you, my Savior, as you don't just bring new life, but new growth, new growth that I desperately, desperately need. Hey, how good would it look six months from now, or a year from now, or five or ten years from now, if you weren't the same person then? with God that you are today. How awesome would it be to have greater maturity, a deeper walk, a greater love for him, and a greater understanding of his love for you? That through this journey, until you get to the destination, he's all you need, and that he has a plan for your life. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. For some of you this morning, The response to a message like this is to say, God, today I choose to press in closer. And I invite you into the details of my life today. Lord, help me to see you in the new that comes. And may I never be content simply with new life. But Lord, give me a hunger and a passion for you and for new growth. As you sanctify me and help me to live out the holiness and the righteousness that you've already given me through my relationship with Christ. For others here today, perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus for the first time, and you're still kind of that 
person who is without hope in this world, without God, without, without a relationship with Jesus. You've always just sort of trusted yourself and your goodness. But today God invites you to step into a, to a blessing called salvation. To where right where you sit this morning, you can choose to lay down your sin and to invite Jesus to come in and to forgive and to take over. And right where you sit as you pray, he'll hear you and he'll change your life. And so God, help us today to follow where you lead. Lord, help us to yield ourselves to you, not just today, not just this moment, but each day. And Lord, there are bumps along the way. I am exhibit A of that. Lord, there are times we don't always feel like a Christian. There are times when we are still prone to wander, whether it be on the outside where everyone can see it or on the inside where only we know. But God, help us to understand that you are always faithful. And Lord, that when we begin to drift, it's never for our good. It's never for your glory. But God, it's that new growth that we need. And so bring it, we pray. And Lord, may our decisions today help us to experience it. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.